What's up, Video Landers? I'm Brad. Welcome to Adventures in Video Land number 225. Remember, you can find us on adventuresinvideoland.com or on our Facebook at Adventures in Video Land. Tonight, I talked with champion Joe Lansdale. Joe is an award-winning author of numerous short stories and novels. One of my favorite stories of his is Bubba Hotep. The story follows Elvis and JFK. They are alive and living in a nursing home where they battle an ancient Egyptian soul-sucking mummy who feeds on the elderly. Please welcome Joe Lansdale. Where are you tonight? I'm in Nacogdoches, Texas in my home. And you just poured some of that uh, Texas iced tea, right? I did. <laughs> I iced the tea, but iced tea. That's so, what we call iced tea. So now we're ready for a good conversation. We're ready. So you have quite the resume. You've written horror, mystery, suspense, western, uh, comics. The list goes on. How long have you been writing? Well, this is 44 years, and I've been full-time probably about uh, most of that, 37, 38 years, something like that. Wow, that's amazing. How much has changed from 40 years to now? A lot of stuff, really. I mean, for one thing, uh, when I started, they said, well, the magazines are dying, and of course, I guess they were, but there were a lot of them, and so there were a lot of short story markets. And there were a lot of different publishing houses. It's before the big monopoly of certain houses buying up others and putting them all under one umbrella. And for a while, even when they were under one umbrella, they were sort of different entities, you know. But then in time, they sort of just absorbed all of them. So now you have fewer markets. But the truth is there are a lot more markets than a lot of new writers think there are. They're just not willing to go out and work for it like we used to because we the only choice we had. Now, do you have a favorite genre that you like to write, since you're, uh, you've are you written no. for every kind of genre? No? No, not really. I, I do think that I tend to like writing historical, but that's a very broad statement, because yeah. there would be any form of history, but I, I do like that a lot. But to tell you the truth, it really has to do with what I'm in the mood for. I'm, I'm writing a happy letter now, right now, and I'm just enjoying the hell out of it. But when I finish that, I will probably let them lie dormant for a while while I work on other things. Now, how'd you get the nickname Champion Joe? I, you know, that isn't my doing. That's my wonderful webmaster who did that, and I really appreciate it because it stuck. At first, I thought, oh, my God, that's embarrassing. That's a little corny, and it makes me sound like I'm an egotistical ass. But uh, he, he did that, and it caught on, so I finally just learned to live with it. And, and you know, it's actually been very helpful in a kind of weird branding way. I feel like I've been shortchanged all these years because you look like you have uh, some very interesting reads. Um, I was just introduced to your work through Bubba Hotep. Um, I've uh -huh. been a big fan of that movie. Um, so it's such a brilliant and creative story. Where did the idea for Bubba Hotep come from? It's that it's kind of a multiple idea. And uh, you know what it is is my, my brother, who's 17 years older than me, he's in his 80s, he lived in Memphis and he tried to record at Sun Records. But he didn't have success. But he also uh, married a girl there, and he's still married to her, who graduated school with Elvis. So he got to meet Elvis, at least in passing, you know. Oh, nice. And he was there at the time when Johnny Cash was, uh, you know, making his mark at Sun Records and Jerry Lee Lewis. And so he may not have known all those people, but he sort of knew them in passing. And, of course, when I was growing up, you know, the first Elvis songs came on when I was about four years old, something like that. And so, all of a sudden, you've got this incredible transformative moment. And it's harder and harder to have those truly transformative moments now. And so that was important to 
me that John F. Kennedy was assassinated during my, you know, uh, I guess I must have been about 11 years old. And uh, that made a big impact on me because he was the first president I was aware of. You know, Eisenhower was president when I was a kid. I remember he played a lot of golf. And now I know him through history. But at the time, you know, I didn't know much. But when John Kennedy came along, there was this young guy, and he looked different from what I thought a president looked like. He didn't look like an old man. He looked uh, very vibrant. And his, you know, he had a beautiful wife and a beautiful family. And uh, he was interested in science and education. So that made a big impact on me and my entire generation. And when he was killed, assassinated, that made a big impact on us, too. So there's were, those were two of the factors. And then as years went on, and of course I'd always liked mummy movies ever since I was old enough to see the Universal Mummy movies and then later other types of mummy movies, Hammer, etc. And so um, when I was older, I got an offer and it said, look, would you like to write a story for a book that was then called, and may, may have actually ended up being called Elvis is Dead. And I said, yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> I had no idea what I was going to do, but I also had this title, Bubba Hotep, that I'd say because I thought it was funny. And then all of a sudden, all of those factors I just mentioned came together. I sat down and wrote it very quickly, and I tried to write it in a kind of almost like a beat poet way where everything just sort of played off one thing and fell into another because I'd been reading a lot of the beats, Kerouac, you know, and, and so on. We embarrassed a little bit. Never liked Burroughs, but I always found him kind of interesting. But anyway, I, all of that stuff came together. I sent it out, and about a few days later, I thought, oh, my God, what have <laughs> I done? That's the craziest story I've ever written. I'm out of my mind. That's hilarious. I'm going to withdraw it. And so when I got ready to withdraw it, I got a letter crossed in the mail before I could send mine. I said, this is the best story in the book. We love this story. And so I thought suddenly my, my feelings about it were a little bit more uh, uh, generous. And then it got published, it got a lot of attention, got nominated for awards, was made to a movie, it's been reprinted a lot just recently again. And uh, there's now a prequel to it called uh, Bubba and the Cosmic Bloodsuckers, which comes out in a couple of months. Oh, I can't wait. I just pre-ordered it uh, just a few days ago on Subterranean Press. It's fun. Oh, I can't wait, yeah, man. It was interesting. I, uh, I'm i a huge horror fan. I'm over here at Adventures in Video, and we do everything from uh, art house to grindhouse, you know? And mm -hmm. from all the horror movies, um, you know, Bubba Hotep is one of the most most original movies um, I've ever seen. And my wife came up. I was, Thank I was, you. yeah, you're welcome, man. I was, uh, I was rewatching Bubba Hotep. I haven't watched it probably like in a year or two, you know? And I was watching, my wife came up and she was like, she knows Bruce Campbell, obviously. I'm a huge Evil Dead fan, you know? And she was oh, like, yeah. she was like, what is, what is this? And I, I gave her the, the quick synopsis. And she, so she sat down and she watched a little bit of it and she was like, she was impressed. She was like, this is so creative, you know? So I think it, it still, you know, um, leaves a mark to this day, you know? Well, you know, Entertainment Weekly had a thing on Mummy movies the other day. Well, the other day, a few weeks back, a, few, a month or so back, whenever the Tom Cruise Mummy movie came out and they listed Bubba Hotep in there and they said, uh, who says there are no new ideas? <laughs> Seriously. I laughed out loud because... You know, and it was on Jeopardy the other day. It was a question on Jeopardy, and I thought, well, that's really strange because it's become the public consciousness. You know, it's, it's in pop culture uh, vein or artery. And uh, Bruce and Don sent me the information that it was on Jeopardy. I think Don sent it to me and Bruce, and that all of us exchanged back and forth. But you know, the thing I've always loved about that film is not only is it is a good film, and not only is it based on the story of mine, 
was so true to my story and the changes they made were small and sometimes understandable due to budget and you know I, I understood what changes were there but it's like as close as 98% what I wrote in the first place Excellent. and the dialogue is right out of the story and when it wasn't the dialogue they took the prose and turned it into dialogue so those people who say you can't make it like the story and certainly had they most other people looked at that story they'd have thought oh my god there's no way you can make this but that's not what Don did he wrote that script he'd offered it to me and I didn't think it could be done and I passed. And then he wrote the script, and it was excellent. And the film was excellent. I got to be on the set, my son and I, and we just had the best time. And I knew then, watching Bruce and Ozzy perform, I thought, you know what? This is going to work. But even then, I had no idea that it would have the impact it did. Just, just amazing. I remember thinking, watching Ozzy, and you know, I, he, he's always been one of my favorites, and I was, uh, I was so excited to be there. And I thought, well, you know, he's kind of pulling back it didn't seem like he's doing much and then when I would see the dailies uh, I got to see some series of dailies I thought oh my god that that genius that guy knows exactly what to give the camera exactly where to look and it made his the impact of his performance so you know elevated that I was just amazed I mean there was a guy was a master of understanding the camera and how, and how it worked and of course Bruce is great too and so the two of them together they wow Man, Ozzie Davis was amazing in this movie. Oh, Bru- I love him. And Bruce Campbell, you know, I'm a huge Evil Dead 2 fan, and, and even even so, I think that him playing Ava, uh, Elvis is probably his best performance. I think that oh, he I just nails I, I it. I say that, too, and I try to say that without, just because it's my, you know, feeling that it's just my piece of work and that I have to say that. I truly believe that. I believe it was his greatest, most nuanced performance. He's given it to some others, you know. I, I've always liked an episode of The X-Files he was in, which he played a, a totally different character than, you know, say, Ash or anything like that. Uh, and then when he did this with Bubba, you know, I think those are among his two greatest performances. I always thought he was an underrated actor, and uh, I, I would love to see him in other things that uh, were less... Uh, not because he doesn't do that well, but because he's already done that, and we can see the excellence with which he does it. He reminds me so much in his moves and stuff of, of Buster Keaton. Yeah. You know, and I always thought, man, that this guy has got the physical comedy down. But there's there's other sides of him too. You know, and, I, and not to lessen that side because I think that kind of stuff is often underrated because people don't understand what it takes to be funny, especially a physical comedian. But he can do all kinds of things, and uh, I want to see more of it. Now, was Bubba Hotep, before the awards, you know, after you sent him out, you said that uh, he tried to retract it. Was there anyone that told you, what the hell, Joe? <laughs> what the hell did you just write? Like, any family members? <laughs> or did you get any no, negative you know, feedback? Really, I mean, there were a few people when it first came out, they thought, what in the hell? <laughs> but the response to it was so surprisingly, you know, uh, positive. And, and I, I went to my friend Mark Nelson, who is an artist, and I said, look, man, I need you to do some hieroglyphics for me for this story. And he did some marvelous hieroglyphics, and I was worried that those wouldn't make it into the film because they were, they were difficult, and, you know, Don didn't have a huge budget. But he did do it with Mummy Speaks and the hieroglyphics come out of his mouth. And I just thought, I thought, man, he, he did it. He stuck to it. That the thing that they lost that's in the story is that there's these sort of ghostly shadows that move with him, and that was too, it was too hard to um, make work with the budget he had, so they used that scarab beetle, which I thought was very, very clever. So what changes they made uh, and were primarily due to
really good. Yeah, you know, a, a lot of people give, you know, Quentin Tarantino, which I love, a lot of credit for his alternate history, you know, with uh, Inglorious Bastards and with Django. Uh, but before them, it was actually Bubba Hotep, man. Have you ever thought about creating stories about other icons, alternate history uh, stories about other icons like Johnny Cash, John Wayne, any, anybody like that? Well, no, none of them. I mean, Johnny Cash, I'm a big fan. His uh, son, John Carter Cash, is a friend of ours. And he did my uh, daughter's, he produced my daughter's two albums. She's a, a West Country singer and a, a blues singer, and he did two albums by her. He did one, one full-length album and one EP. And uh, great guy. I love his dad's work. Johnny Johnny Cash and Elvis Presley are for me my people would agree with that i think uh, there's a lot of people that love that a lot of people do yeah now i gotta be man i've i wrote four of those that was great i loved it i've wanted a sequel to bubba hotep since i watched it in 2002 no joke i was i was one of those guys i think it was at the end of the movie wasn't it that there was a i think it was maybe on the commentary i remember hearing something about bubba nosferatu and the curse of the she vampires That's a horrible joke. <laughs> yeah. People reacted to it in a very positive way. So off and on, Bruce and Don and I have talked about it. I've never been particularly interested in doing that. I, I felt like that when you did a film that you did that well, you don't need a whole bunch of sequels and prequels. You know, I wasn't 100% against it. And there, and there came a time not long ago when we talked about it very seriously. But it just kind of went by the, the wayside. I, th- I think time just... Uh, and attrition may have 
it ever should happen, it may not be, you know, me and Bruce and Don or whatever, but although Don owns the rights, he could certainly, you know, push it off to somebody else if he chose to. But uh, I, I think the best film that could have been done was done. The, the one coming out is a prequel above in the Cosmic Bloodsuckers. Might be really fun to see in a film, but you'd have to have a little money to make it. Okay, so that brings us to uh, Bubba and the Cosmic Bloodsuckers, and that's due out in October, right? That's right. So what made you decide to come back to Elvis after all these years? Because I'm sure that some fans have been throwing you shit since 2002, right, about getting another oh, yeah, uh, yeah, okay. getting another story I, out, right? I really never planned to. It was like the movie. I didn't want to do it again. And uh, what happened is Bruce and Don and I got to talking about this prequel, and uh, I threw out some ideas, and they threw out some ideas, and then... I the, the, there was a script that was done not by me but by someone else but Bruce hated it so the film didn't get made and uh, it was really kind of a sequel but I decided on a prequel when when uh, Elvis was younger and when I first started thinking about it I think Bruce was young enough to have played the younger Elvis because he could make himself look so much younger he's in such good you know he could be yeah, in yeah. terrific shape very quickly. Uh, nice-looking guy and all that. But I think as time went on, you know, it just got too much distance for one thing. And, and again, I think all of us kind of moved in different directions. But I just decided the story was there. And I said, you know what? I, I'm the guy who came up with this, so I'm going to come up with this prequel with the early Elvis. And um, I did. Now, can you tell us this, a little bit about the story without spoilers? Well, I'm not going to tell you much because I'm a big believer in letting people discover it. But what I will say is this, is that um, the colonel, who was the colonel uh, Parker, who was, uh, uh, you know, Elvis's manager, is very important in this novel. Uh, Nixon appears. Um, it takes place in the 70s, right before Elvis, uh, well, some people believe he died. And in my stories, he didn't. He went into hiding and was replaced by Sebastian Half. So this leads up to how that happened. But it's also an adventure that they have with these, they're not exactly vampires, but they're vampire-like. And they're from another dimension. And it's uh, it's got a mixture of that. It's got a mixture of... Uh, uh, of what some people might think of as magic, but really is sort of uncovered science. And he has a crew, almost like a Doc Savage crew. Um, awesome. Where the where the colonel sort of the head. He's, and uh, but Elvis is the one who leads the team, so to speak. And they have different abilities. I really don't want to tell you those abilities because yeah, yeah. I want you to discover them. And also, it's done in such a way that all of that sounds somewhat familiar. But when you read it, I don't think you're going to feel that way at all. Now, can we read this and then go right into Bubba Hotep? Yeah, it won't hurt it a bit. Okay. You know, and uh, you can read them either way. It's a good sense. It's a prequel. It, you'll understand even if you just read Bubba Hotep first. And if you read the prequel first, it'll fit right into Bubba Hotep. Man, I and lo- you'll understand why he has no memory of things prior. Oh, awesome. Uh, that dealt, dealt with the uh, supernatural or the oddities of that's awesome. So I love the title. It comes off very, uh, like She Vampires is cool. It, it could be considered kind of Grindhouse as well, you know, but um, The Cosmic Suckers, <laughs> that's just, that's a fun title. Uh, was there any other titles hey, that you were flirting with? What's that? 
Were there any other titles that you were flirting with, or was it always the Cosmic uh, Suckers? And the Cosmic Vampires was one, but they didn't really fit classically into the vampire frame. And also, at Dawn, it had a thing called uh, Bubba Nosferatu, which was the one that they were going to do, you know, the, the she-vampires. You know. And uh, that really wasn't exactly what I was after, but I had some ideas that I had tossed around here and there, and I finally just decided to play with them in my own way, and I did. Now, any other antagonists that you've been flirting with, like Elvis and Beelzebub, anything anything crazy like that, or is it you know, always the Cosmic uh, no, Suckers? I, I, I really haven't. I, I don't know that there will ever be another story with them. I, I think that you could read these two and be wrapped up for good. But like I, I always have a motto is that I, I never say never because you don't know. And this story came to me, and I kept trying to push it aside, and I kept trying to push it aside. And it started coming, and it would come fast, and then it would lay dormant for a while because I was working on other work. I think my mind had to put it on a back shelf because I was contracted for other things I was doing, and film work I was doing, and books I was doing. So I would do those, and I would return to it. Uh, but, you know, the time spent on it when I was actually writing was very uh, pretty quick. And I, I turned it in, and it was... I usually do one draft and a polish. I turned it in, and it was a little bit longer and a little bit wordier, I think, than I wanted it to be. So I, I did another pass on it uh, and got it in shape the way I like it, and uh, I'm pretty proud of it. Now, so you said, like, Bruce has mentioned that he would, you know, come back to a follow-up, you know, if it was right. Well, at one time, I don't think he's interested anymore. Oh, see, that's I, good. I think that oh. all of us at one time had thought about it. And uh, I, think, I think Bruce feels like, kind of like I do, you know, that ship has sailed and why come back to it? Because we've done it. We did a really good job in film. I think in, in prose, it's a little different. You can do things like that more easily, but the problem with it when you do it in film, uh, people tend to always think, I've just got to make it bigger and better with more explosions. And, and um, you know, I had a fear of that. And uh, I think Bruce, too, he just got to a point in his career where he felt like, you know, I've done this. So, do I really need to do this again? And I don't think he does. I've never had that sequel either. I've had a few books, like like my series happen littered. I don't think of them, it's a series, not so much a sequel. There's a kind of a different feel to it. But, um, you know, if, if you don't need one, don't do one. That's that, my take. That's good that you think that way, though, I guess. You know, because us fans, we want a trilogy, but you here as the writer... You're thinking, you know, hey, there's no, there's no story there, you know, unless, unless the, right. the creative juice, right. juices get flowing. And, and sometimes, you know, you may, I, there, there's three drive-in books, and I'm, I'm very happy with all of them. Although, uh, the one I, that I had the most fun with is the third one, which is probably the least liked of the liked of the series, you know. But I had the most fun with it. I found the other two very hard to write, although I wrote them both very quickly. And I wrote all three of them quickly. But the one I had fun with was the third one, and it was because they're, they're humorous and they have this attitude of, of, of strangeness about them. They're also about uh, dark subjects. They're very satirical. And in some ways, they're as dark as anything I've ever written. And I don't mean bloody and stuff like that. I mean dark in a psychological uh, way. And it also deals with the, the usual props of, uh, of genre fiction and film. And so they're they're unique, and I did three of those because they were there, and they were written, uh, first two were written close together, the third one was written like maybe 18, 20 years apart, you know? So you never know. I had the Happen Leonard series, and I had one time when I stopped writing, I didn't write another one for eight years, and then I stopped again, I didn't write another one for 
another one the 13th of the series and I'm, I'm uh, going somewhere else uh, creatively and I don't know how long it'll be before I come back to them or if I will I think I will but you know I, I let I let my interest carry me more than uh, anything else this is what I want to do so I do it you know and with you saying that it reminds me of a quote that I read of yours it said um, fuck the readers I know what you yeah. mean by that. Can you can, can you explain to Video Land what you mean by that? Because well, I love I, I love of, it. I also have another quote: is that uh, uh, right like everybody you know is dead. <laughs> and what I mean by that is not that I hate the reader. I mean that's what they and you always have the guys out there the little feelers are stuck out and on their sleep. He said he hates it. Well, those people for that. Well, fuck you for sure. But but what what I'm really saying is simply this: you cannot think of the reader when you write. True. When you get through, you hope like hell the reader loves you. But if you're trying to figure out what everyone likes, that's impossible. I don't know what everyone likes, so the only person I truly know as far as like what that person likes is me. So I have to try to do the best I can to please me, and then when I put it out there, then, I, then of course I hope very much that the readers like it. So then it's sort of not fuck the reader, but when you write, you have to just say fuck the reader, or you have to say, I'm writing like everybody I know is dead so that I'm not trying to write for an editor or an agent or whatever. You know, sometimes there are variations in that. Like if I'm working for uh, DC Comics, I obviously know if I'm working with a DC comic character, I have to keep a certain background and uh, profile uh, of that character in my mind when I write. So there's sort of a built-in restriction. But that doesn't mean you can't carry it someplace different and do something as unique with it as possible. But when you're doing your own work, obviously you hope everybody loves it, they buy it in millions, you get zillions of dollars, everybody enjoys the work, they're happy, they're excited, but when you write, when you sit down to do it, you can't do that. You, you have learned over the years, though, certain things that you feel probably subconsciously appeal to the reader that is you. And when you write, I try to say, well, I, I, I don't want to wait through this kind of stuff, so I'm not going to put that in, because that's not how I would read it. I like dialogue. I'm going to put that in. Obviously, I know there are going to be readers out there that will hate my choices, but that's okay. I can live with that. I've lived with it for 40-something years, because I'm not trying to write for them. When I write, when I get done, I hope they like it, but I'm my own genre. I'm the Lansdale genre. I'm not trying to fit comfortably into any other existing genre other than the one that I'm creating for myself. If, if you would have wrote for the fans or wrote for the reader, we would never have got Bubba Hotep, would we? Mm-hmm. You wouldn't have got Bubba Hotep. You wouldn't have got the drive-in books. Um, I, and so much of my work, a lot of the short stories, Type of Stitches in the Dead Man's Back, Night They Missed the Horror Show, uh, By Bizarre Hands, The Pit, uh, you know, all of those things. And uh, they would not have happened. And, and what's weird is that I've always been fortunate in that films have optioned my work for 30-something years, although there's been very little made. But recently, I, I, I think what's happened, you know, I say this and it sounds egotistical, I don't mean it that way at all, but I, I'm going to what I've been told is they've caught up with me. Uh, you know, what uh, Tarantino is doing, I was doing that in prose. Not, not like him, I don't mean, but I mean taking those same sort of trips. And, uh, you know, and that's, that's true of a lot of writers. Sometimes that writer clicks right away and, you know, they hit a broader media. Sometimes it takes a long time for them to click and sometimes they never do. And I think it sometimes has also nothing to do with how wonderful your work is or how bad it is. It just has to do with 
market today that just never really hit it. Yeah. And sometimes it's because they handled their careers poorly, and sometimes for whatever reason, it just seems like when they should have turned left, they turned right. When they should have gone right, they turned left. Something that they can't know at that time and, and can sometimes look back and see, but a lot of times never really know why it didn't happen. And it, it's very, very strange. Uh, you know, I, I, I see people who have good careers, but they don't necessarily have blockbuster careers. And that's good. I mean, having a good career is wonderful. The idea that everybody's got to have a blockbuster career is, is ludicrous. Uh, but there are those who should have had better careers and bigger careers and more successful careers that for whatever reason, excluding those who obviously were just dumbasses and handled their, their lives and their careers poorly, you just don't know why those people didn't have a bigger career. So many of them are so much more talented than me. And I would say, man, these guys are great. They're going someplace, but they didn't. Or they went for a little while, and then they just sort of fell off a cliff. And then some, they just never could get any traction. So it's, you never know about these things. And because of that, you've got to write for yourself, because I think that you're more likely to create something that's unique at the swimming pool that's, not like others, where people can go and the water feels different. And I think that's up to you, because you're not really competing with other riders, and when you start doing that, you're, you're screwed, because if you're competing with other riders, that means you want to have what they have or to do what they do. And I don't want to do that. I, I wish everybody luck. I have some riders who I love, some that I don't like their work at all, but we're all in this together. We're all trying to do the best we can, and if you try to figure out how to do what they're doing or to compete against them, you'll never make it. When you're starting out and you're learning, you obviously, you know, look at riders and you duplicate certain things they do and try to understand how they do things, but that's going to school. But once you've gone to school, you start trying to take those influences and blend them and, and you'll, you'll still have, you know, I, I believe that I work sometimes and I can see, you know, Hemingway in there or Flannery O'Connor or Ray Bradbury or, or whoever, but it becomes your own thing because we're all dealing with the same materials but it's how we cut our cloth that makes the difference yeah I, th I think a great example right now for fuck the reader or fuck the viewer is uh, Ridley Scott's Alien Covenant are you familiar with that at all no I have not you know because with, with Ridley Scott you know he did Prometheus he I mean I know the title yeah, yeah, he didn't answer all of the, the questions to Prometheus. He just jumped in right into Alien Covenant. Prometheus didn't do very well, so with Alien Covenant, he tried to to give that fanfare, and Alien Covenant turned into a mess because it was more of a sequel to Prometheus, but with Alien fanfare, you know? So you didn't get the pure movie that you wanted that answered all those 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 questions, you know, because he was so concerned yeah. about the reader or the viewer. You know, so I, I read that quote of yours, I'm like, that's right on. I wish Hollywood would grab a hold of that, fuck the reader or yeah, fuck well, the viewer. Yeah, worse. And, and uh, there's so many things that I love about films, and I'm a big fan of films, and, and if all goes well, I'll be directing my first next year. But awesome. the, the, the thing about films, and, and what's problematic when it's a Hollywood film, especially even more than an independent film, certainly more than an independent film, is that you have so many masters to please. Yes. And everybody's got their finger in the pie, and not everybody that's, got their finger in the pie is talented, nor even knows what they're doing, but they're all still want to make their mark. And when people will option something that's really good, sometimes, and, and sometimes certain books just cannot be translated as is, but many of them are far 
more likely to be translated closer than people think, but they're just not willing to do that kind of work. You know, they'll say something like, and you can just about bend over and spread your ass when they say, we're going to work in the spirit of, or we're going <laughs> to open it up. Those, those are kind of code for, we're just doing what the hell we want. Now, I, there are exceptions to that. There are some I have seen that were quite different that were very hard to film, and they couldn't do that, and they truly did manage to capture the spirit of the book or the story. But most of the time when you hear that, it's just a cliche. It's a, it's a thing they say, which means, you know, we've finally given up trying to do it right. We're going to do it our way, which means some writer comes in, he says, well, if I do it like the book, then nobody's going to take notice of me. It'll always be the book. And, you know, the, the example I give is if you do To Kill a Mockingbird, which is a beautiful book and a wonderful film, you that, that film, he had to leave a lot of stuff that was in the book out of it. But when you watch that film, you feel like that that's the book. Because all of the things that are essential, all of the things that probe the back of your subconscious when you read that, are in that film. And it's, of course, a combination of that script by Horton Foote, who just did a magnificent job, but also the performances and the camera work and the direction. Everything there lent itself to service the book, not to service the film. And you don't see that much, you know. And I remember Get Shorty was so much like the novel, it was very successful, yeah. you know. It, 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 it got it. And then when you have something like a short story, uh, like Fire in the Hole by Elmore Leonard, and they developed Justified around it, yeah. but they were so loving and so cautious about, okay, this story's only this long, but we got a series. But every time we write a script, we're going to think of Elmore Leonard, and we're going to say, what would Dutch do? And that's why that series was so remarkable, because you could believe every episode that Dutch wrote that script, even though he didn't, you know. I think he may, he may have written one, I can't remember. But nonetheless, see, that's, now that's where they worked in the spirit of, and they truly understood the meaning of that, meaning not that I'm just going to do what the hell I want, but I'm going to try to think, how would he write dialogue? And it's one of the you know, biggest complaints I have in adaptations of my work. I love Cold in July. So, I so adore it. I love the Half of Leonard series. But there are times when I think, you know, I had some dialogue there that would really just been, you could have just plugged it in and would have worked. And the excuse is always that, well, it's it, two different mediums. Not those dialogue words. They're not. You can't carry a long conversation like I might have in a book. But you can be selective about certain moments that are there. And I think they have been very, very good to me. Don't misunderstand me. But it's always that way of looking at it is that if you're writing a book, especially one that's strong in, in dialogue or character, that's where you should go to live. That's where you should go to visit. And you should stop and say, what was the author trying to do here? And better yet, if you have that author alive, ask them. What were you trying to do here? Yeah. What were you after? And that's what we just did for uh, the, the third season of Happy Leonard. I was kindly invited out for uh, two or three days, and they discussed with me, what is this book doing? What are the characters doing? What are they trying to accomplish? And I'm fortunate in that I have, uh, you know, uh, Jim Mickle there, who uh, directed some of the first season and, and had produced it, and I've got Nick DiMici, who really loves my work and cares about it, but 
always have to remember when you're dealing with Hollywood, you're dealing with TV, you're dealing with networks, you're dealing with everybody's ego, you're dealing with everybody trying to get their little bit in. And, uh, you know, it's just harder to produce something that's closer to the bone, whereas prose, that's coming directly from you. You're the director, you're the writer, you're the, I mean, the uh, actor, you know, you're the producer, you're the, all the characters in it, including the dog that barks in the nighttime. You do the art direction, and you write it in such a way that the reader has to create 50% of it. So it's a different sort of thing. Yeah, which is crazy, too, because you look at uh, smaller movies like, you know, especially look at the horror genre. You look at Get Out. I don't know if you've watched Get Out or not. Great. Yeah, I, know, I like it a lot. Yeah, and that's a, that's, that movie cost pretty much nothing in the scheme of things. And, and I think these little, little movies... You know, uh, with the right backing, um, or what keep what is keeping Hollywood afloat right now? Well, yeah, I think so too. I mean, a lot of these blockbusters is all they got is blockbusters now. It used to be that was for the summer. Which, and don't get me wrong, I love a lot of those films. I'm not trying to put any one film over another. Yeah. I just don't want to see one kind of film all the time. I don't want to see uh, comic book films all the time, but I sure want to see some because I do love comic books and I love comic book films. But I also want to see things like I Don't Belong in This World Anymore, which was a small, independent film that uh, was, uh, I, I think it may have premiered at South by Southwest or Sundance, I'm not certain. But it's now on Netflix, and it's probably one of the best crime films I've seen in ages. Really? Yeah, it's, and I saw it somebody had written the best Joe Lansdale films that he never wrote, which I thought was funny. That's awesome. But they listed Hell and High Water and, and that one. And both of those, I could see what they were talking about. They're their own things, but I knew what they meant. That there, there's a kinship with uh, my work and their work. And, in fact, uh, the director that did Hell in High Water, they've optioned the pit. And uh, I don't know if they'll ever make it, but, uh, you know, I can see that we're all kind of connected. We all have a sort of, we're all cousins in a way. Yeah, it's important to have that kinship, like you said. I think... Uh, from my knowledge, uh, looks like a, a great kin a kinship that is a good example right now would probably be um, uh, George R. R. Martin and HBO. You know, even though he hasn't finished the yeah. books, you know, it looks like they go to him for all the answers. Yeah, I mean, yeah see, that's a, that's another example. I, like I say, I, I think I think I've been fortunate too, and, and a lot of people aren't fortunate. So I, I wasn't complaining about my people, but I'm just saying how how film works. And I'm sure there's things that George sees on HBO and he goes, oh, well, you know, watch it. <laughs> yeah. but, but on the other hand, it is very faithful to him. And I, I know he's very loyal to the show. He cares about it. I mean, he and I are friends. We've been friends for a long time. And uh, it's been very good to him. But, but primarily, he's not making as much money off the TV show as he is off of the advertising it gives that sell his books. The books are where he makes his money. And I find that glorious. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, like, with uh, George R. R. Martin, I know he gets hounded all the time about, when are you going to finish your book? When are you going to finish this? You know, that has to <laughs> has to suck. Have you had that kind? I mean, obviously, Game of Thrones is this this huge thing. Bubba Hotep, uh -huh. I freaking adore. Have you had those kind of fans, though, that email you and they're like, come on, Joe, come on, where's the, where's the sequel? Well, you know, I'm so, I'm so prolific. I'm not as prolific as the old prolific writers and the pulps and things like that. But probably for modern days, for somebody that has been, you know, in kind of in a broader arena, I'm fairly prolific. So there's always something for readers. And, you know, some readers only want to read Half and Leonard. Some readers only want to read the historical. Some, uh, you know, only want to read the comic stuff. Or, 
you know, whatever it is. Everybody's got their own area that they like. But a lot of people read all of it, or most of it, and so they've always got something of mine out there, at least they have up until this point. And uh, they also don't know if I'm going to switch gears or not, you know. So I think that most of the time they know that if they just wait a little bit, it'll, there'll be something there because my books come with a, a sort of regular rhythm. Uh, but I do have some that, of course, are always saying, well, you know, when, when are you going to write that uh, next Ned the Seal book? And why don't you do another drive-in? Why don't, why don't you write more uh, uh, about Elvis? Why don't, you know, you do have that. But I think in my case, it's unlike George's case, because George is, is famous for Game of Thrones, not exclusively, but, you know, probably more dramatically than any other book or collection of stories he's written. So I think that therefore, and because he takes time between, quite a bit of time between all of them, therefore that's why he gets so much pressure. And of course, so many people are aware of that work because it's just such a magnificent uh, and popular uh, uh, you know, series. Yeah, and it's so important to share things because I, I was looking at Facebook. Um, I was one of those nights where you know you're up at two in the morning and you're just kind of you know scrolling through your feed. And I saw, yeah. I don't know who shared it. I have no idea. I wish I could give them credit. But I saw the Cosmic Suckers, right? And I'm like, uh-huh. I, I remember looking at my wife, right? Because I seriously, I've been a fan of Bubba Hotep for a long time. I go, I go, hell yeah. And then it said, you know, Joe Lansdale. I think it was a, a, a link to um, Subterranean Press, I think is what it was. You know, and that's where I looked up. I was like, oh, Joe Lansdale. I got I to gotta find this guy, man. And then I was like, so Bubba Hotep and this Cosmic Suckers this has been a gateway to your other books. And I started, you know, like researching you and I was like, man, this guy has what seems to be some interesting stories, which we'll hit on here in a little bit, but man, Cosmic Suckers, I'm so glad it's coming out. How long will these, this book be? Is it like, is it 200 pages of what I've read? Uh, it's novel length. It's short novel though. It's a, it's longer than a novella and it's a novel length, but it's a short novel. Uh, I don't really remember how many pages that came out. I, I, I don't want to lie to you. But okay. It's over 200 pages. But and, it is uh, done, right? Uh, it, what's that? It is, do- it is finished? Oh, it's finished, yeah. It's okay. already in production. The cover's done. The thing's been proofed. Uh, it should I, you know, come out right on schedule in October. Yeah, I figured it was because I pre-ordered I it. it up, uh, I think last year, if I remember yeah, I figured it was. I pre-ordered it. It said October, but I didn't know if there was some final touches or if you're still working on, like, the last yeah. act of the of the novel. No, I did those. They sent those to me. You know, the, the thing with working with with small press, even good with the subterranean is undoubtedly my favorite small press. There's always a little harder to always to, to get the proofreading as well as you would like it because the worst person to go to for proofreading in most cases is the author. Because the author has looked at that stuff, no telling how many times, and you start to see things that aren't there, and you start to be satisfied with things that you think exist that don't. And so you've got to have a good proofreader to come in and say that, you know, you said and, and twice, back to back. You did, you know, just little things like that. I'm not talking about somebody coming in and rewriting your book. I'm, I'm, I wouldn't stand for that. But to just come in and catch the obvious spelling errors, the... And sometimes the gra- grammatical stuff, you know, is sometimes I violate grammatical rules on purpose. I, I, I one of the funniest things I did, I did <clears throat> from time to time. I'll do like a run-on sentence that might go for a very long time. I've had people say, "You know, this sentence is obviously a run-on sentence." I can't believe that the author, and obviously they're stupid because it, it's 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 a technique. 
you know, but they're so caught up in the grammar Nazi viewpoint that they can't understand when it's a technique and when it's just bad grammar. You know, yeah, there, yeah. there are two exceptions, you know, there, you can go either way. It's either bad grammar or it's a, you know, you're experimenting with it or you're doing it for effect. That doesn't mean a person always likes it. But yeah. It's like looking at William S. Burroughs and saying, you know, this stuff is all cut up, it doesn't make any sense all the time. Well, it's obvious, like it or hate it, that that is certainly his intent. So sometimes people don't understand an intent that is obvious. But then there are others that just don't like that, and that's far more acceptable. I just don't like that. Yeah, you know? is this but, doing... Uh, but that's what you need proofreaders for, and you don't always have the best proofreading, sometimes because of the proofreaders may be very good, but they don't always have the best time to do it. So with... with and this is true of all books, but, but a small press, I think, uh, very much so. So you try to get those done as early as you can so that you have a chance to look over them uh, in a reasonable and more leisurely amount of time. Yeah, and I imagine it's so that's doing... That's why it was done last year and it's ready now. I imagine Cosmic Suckers is doing pretty well because when I went to go pre-order, there was a uh, like a limited edition, and I couldn't even pre-order yeah. that because it was already sold out. Oh, yeah, it's sold out, and the others will be sold out, too. Um I'm expecting that to happen probably uh, September. Now, where's the where's the best places to get your novels? Because I went to um, I don't know if there's a, a well, you know, I have a, you know if if you go for the Half and Litter, Kanoff published uh, some of them, and they bought all of the backlist, and they're all in vintage, which is their paperback line, which is Jim Thompson and Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett, James Kane, all those are in these beautiful vintage paperbacks and then when I moved to Mulholland they took over and of course they did them in hardback first but they also have a paperback line of my books my books are easy to find they're on Amazon they're on Barnes and Noble I've walked in numerous Barnes and Noble stores and seen them um, there's some of the small press books though that are a little harder to find though most of them are in print in some form or another be it ebooks or yeah, yeah. be it actual paper books uh, but there are certain little oddities of short story collections and stuff that you have to find uh, dealers who bought them when they came out, or in some cases, uh, different uh, editions of them. But most of my work is available in some form or another. And I always have people say, you know, your books are hard to find. So you look on Amazon. No. Yeah, no, I need to go to I need to go to Amazon. Yeah, because I just went to Barnes and Noble and I picked up uh, I pre-ordered the thicket. It should be in um, like Monday or Tuesday. And I asked for Dead in the West. They couldn't grab that. It was only on ebook. And then I asked for Bubba Hotel. Dead in the West actually is part of a, of a book called Dead Man's Road. Dead Man's so Road? If you get that, you not only get Dead in the West, you get four more stories about that same character. Oh, awesome. Fellas. Nice to know. Because I asked for that, and then I also asked for um, Bubba Hotep. Because um, I've only watched the movie. I've never read the book. I was like, man, I want to read this now. And uh, I couldn't and get that either. That, it's in the best of Joe Orlando. See, that's what I'm saying is that they're in different editions. Okay. They, they are in, they're out there in some form or another. Uh, there are a few things that are not available, but it's very few. The Big Blow, which won Ridley Scott option, well, David Lynch option first, and the Ridley Scott option, I did a screenplay. It's nearly been done for numerous times, and it's never happened. But that book that inspired, uh, you know, the one they option uh, is inside the, uh, the best of Joe R. Lansdale, too, from Tachyon. And if you get the best of Joe R. Lansdale and you find High Cotton, which is one without a print, but still available online, you've got nearly all of my work. Uh, I 
because you do because you do a lot of short because you do a lot of short stories and novels. Do you prefer one or the other for for just the horror genre or thriller genre? shot. I prefer to read short stories and I prefer to write short stories, but that doesn't mean I don't enjoy writing and reading novels, because I do. And uh, they're both, you know, sort of a different challenge. Uh, I like all of them more than writing scripts, which I find scripts relatively easy to do. It doesn't mean uh, I'm giving them short shrift. I just don't think that they're as hard to do, because they're not as dedicated to uh, the internalization and and, and uh, the prose itself is not going to be visual for most people who read it, though I still try to write as well as I can when I write a script. But it's a it's a different animal, and I don't enjoy it as much as I do prose, novels, short stories. I want to bring up some of your other work. Um, I wanted to bring up an anthology book that I'm very excited to read. It's called Knights of the Living Dead. Um, unfortunately, yeah. it's very relevant right now with the passing of uh, George A. Romero, which is one of my favorite yeah. directors. Uh, can you tell me a little yeah, bit about that? Can you, can you tell me a little bit about that? Oh, the anthology? Oh, sure, sure. Um, to tell you the truth, I've written, I've probably written six or seven uh, zombie stories in my career. Uh, on the far side of the Cadillac Desert with Dead Folks is probably the best known. Uh, but I've written some others. And Dead in the West, uh, which is in Dead Man's Road, is, is kind of a zombie novel. Uh, and it was done in, came out in 1986. And it was a weird Western before there was much of that going on in prose. It's not that I, I invented it, but I certainly sort of, uh, you know, came along when it wasn't a thing and it kind of revived uh, some interest in that, which I'm proud of. But uh, and the Knights of the Living Dead is that uh, Jonathan Mayberry said, look, you know, George wants to do this, this book. He and I are doing this together, and we want to explore other avenues of the living dead. And so we just kind of generally stuck to what George had created, but we had it in different venues. And mine is really kind of has to do with uh, a lady who is kind of, and I, it's a drag race. It, and, now it takes uh, it takes place that same night, her, right? You know, it leads into uh, all kinds of stuff. It takes place the same night, right, as Night of Living Dead. Yeah, that yeah. is awesome. And, and, and uh, yeah, I, I think I think there's some cheaters in some of the other stories, but they, they were all stories that George, you know, sanctioned, and they all feel like his universe. But they're also tonality-wise quite a bit different. Now, did you like creating a story in that in that universe, and how did you nail down the story that you wanted to tell? Well, you know, like I said, I've written uh, zombie stories for which I was just sick of it. I never wanted to write another one as long as I lived. <laughs> and then uh, Jonathan Mayberry told me about this, and I thought, oh, George Romero, and it was sort of like somebody just gave me a shot in the arm, and I, went, I suddenly, it interested me again, because it was George Romero's anthology. And uh, I just said, you know, I, I'm, I'm tired of, of the usual approach to this, and even though I wanted to stay within the context of the way the films are developed generally, I also wanted to have more movement, at least for a large part of the story. And I like the idea, too, of a female lead character, and uh, it just developed. Most of my stories, I never plot them. They just happen. And I, I get a mood, I get an attitude, and it just one word comes after another. A, a kind of side note on that one, which I really like, is that my daughter is a professional singer, and, uh, but she also does audio books, and she ended up doing my story in Nights of the Living Dead. Oh, which awesome. was pretty funny for the audio. And she's got the authentic East Texas accent. Excellent. 
Excellent. That is awesome, man. Yeah, I think yeah. I cut you off a little bit when you were talking about that. Can you tell me what Dead Man's Curve is about? Dead Man's Curve is about um, a, a, a woman who is a professional, well, sort of, uh, not, not a professional, but she is a as good a driver as you can find, and she does races for money, but she's kind of gotten away from doing that, but her brother wants her to do one because he needs money. And so she agrees to do it against a kind of couple of jerks, and they, they do this race, and it starts on the this uh, long road where it turns and has what they call dead man's curve. It's a very dangerous curve. And at the same time, the incidents of Night of the Living Dead are happening. And so the road begins to get filled up with you know, the living dead, the walking dead, and things go bad from there. And I won't tell you much more than that. I don't want to uh, ruin the story for yeah, you. Yeah. But I think what makes the story fun is the voice in it and the attitude in it uh, more than the incidents themselves. I mean, I touch on some familiarities, but I think I do it in a way that I hope will be exciting and interesting and somewhat different for me. As a writer, are you happy with the other anthologies? Did you get a chance to read it? The other I stories? I read all of them, but I have read some of them, and I really like what I read. Awesome. Let's talk about some of your other universes that you've written for. You've brought up a few tonight. Right. You've written for comics, graphic novels. We have a lot of DC fans in the group. You've written for the Batman animated series, The Son of Batman, right. Superman, Jonah Hex, Tarzan, uh, Conan, Lone Ranger. Do you enjoy writing in someone else's sandbox, or would you rather create your own? I'd rather create my own, but that doesn't mean I, I didn't enjoy those. I wouldn't have done them had I not. Um, you know, and there's some things turn out better than others. It's just like anything else. No matter how good you try to do something, you never know how it's going to turn out until it's turned out. And even then, you may not know until it's already been out there and you've had time to step back from it and look at it. But I, I did enjoy doing all of those characters because the characters have been a lot to me. But I've also toned down over the years a number of other characters that I might like to have done, but I didn't want to get caught up in being the guy who adapts other people's creations all the time. I wanted to do it a little, and I'm not saying I would never do it again, but I, I would rather do my own work, and so that's why I would do a little bit now and again to satisfy the nostalgia and the childlike you know, aspects of how these things affected me, because DC Comics is one of the greatest influences in my life as a writer. That's cool. That's awesome. Is there is there a character that you haven't written for that you would like to write for in DC? Well, you know, with Batman, I've never written a comic. I wrote for the animated series. I wrote a novel called Captured by the Engines, E-N-G-I-N-E-S. And then I wrote a, uh, a, a young adult book, kind of a middle-aged book, I guess, uh, called, uh, what was it? Something on the High Sky, you know. Uh, I, I can't remember, maybe not Instant on the High Sky, something I don't even remember the name anymore, but it was a series of young adult books and uh, several writers were chosen to write those, and I was fortunate enough to be one of those, and I had great fun doing it. I, I had fun writing a novel, uh, but I didn't want to continue doing it. I didn't want to end up, again, being the guy that wrote the Batman books. I didn't want to spend my life in nostalgia, and I didn't want to spend my life dealing yeah. with somebody else's characters. You know, That can be very profitable from time to time, because if you catch a wave when something's really popular and you decide I'm going to write a Star Wars novel or a Star Trek novel and I'm not begrudging anybody doing that by the way because yeah, yeah. some people they're so passionate about it or maybe they need the money too you know 
judging them, but it's just not something I want to make a career out of. Yeah, and you also brought up Doc Savage, you know, tonight. Is there any other pulp, yeah. is there any other pulp um, characters? Because you've written for Tarzan, Conan, and Lone Ranger. Is there any other pulp figures that you would like to write for someday? quick just a just a quick glimpse of your writing process what's it like for you do you have any routines when you're writing for dc pulp or one of your original novels pretty much the same uh, you know i get up in the morning after i have my coffee or and, and i take the my wife and i whichever one of us gets up first takes the dog out so you know i can try <laughs> to pretend to sleep a little longer that i don't have to get up but uh generally i get up and or she gets up we take the dog out when i have a cup of coffee i take my vitamins i read my email and then i pull up uh whatever it is i'm working on at that time and sometimes i'm working on two or three different projects at once wow. uh, and i usually have a main project and then i have some that are kind of like if i have a good day and i'm through early then i work on that but my morning my work day is usually one to three hours you know that's about all i work a day and that works for me because I, I write three to five pages a day nearly every day and some days I'll get extensive amounts like you know seven ten fifteen but my minimum is three to five and if I can get that every day and I polish it as I go and I, ne I never know what's going to happen when I go to bed at night I just get up the next morning and start all over so usually by noon you know I start whenever I get up it might be seven it might be eight it might be nine I get up when I get up and then I work to usually about noon, um, and a little less if I get up real early, and then I'm done for the day. And then I have time to, uh, uh, you know, work on film projects. I do martial arts. I do that. I teach it still. I've been doing it for 55 years this fall. And so I have other interests, and I, I think you should have. And, of course, I spend a lot of time reading. I watch films. I, uh, my wife and I watch TV shows. We have a lot of different things we're interested in and I just find that I do better by not having long stretches of work and I, if I had to do it all day I would get bored I would I, I find that I might have a long great day and then the next day or two I would want to work so if I get up and know I'm only going to work this short amount of time and generally get three to five pages and sometimes a little more then I'm content and I do that you know anywhere generally from five to seven days a week yeah, um, you just mentioned mentioned martial arts. Um, I'm a I'm a personal trainer, so it's so important for me to be in the gym. I couldn't do Adventures in Video Land weekly episodes, interviews without having that uh, that therapy time. 
So what is yeah, it? Where's I, martial arts been like for you? What is what is the? How has well, that changed? You know, I'm I'm, uh, I'm 65 now, and I started when I was 11. My dad taught me boxing and wrestling, so I started with that. Then I went into judo and the, and, you know, uh, the hapkido and kempo and the old taekwondo, which is not like the taekwondo now at all. I did kickboxing. I, I did other kinds of jujitsu. I mean, there's a long list of things, and partly. It was because whenever I was studying something in Tyler, Texas at the YMCA, I'd be doing it for a while, they'd move off. Then another system would come in, so I, I would study that. And then at some point, you know, I began to get ranked in certain systems. But I found that I was blending them when I started teaching, and in time I formed my own system, and, uh, you know, it was accepted. And I, fortunately, you know, I was, I'm mean, in the International Martial Arts Hall of Fame, United States Martial Arts Hall of Fame, and so is the system, which, you know, it's not necessarily the greatest uh, achievement, but it's certainly a nice achievement. It's a, it's a nice recognition, let's put it like that. And so I've been doing it for a long time. And for me, it helps keep me centered. I yeah. think it gives me confidence when I get up to write. I usually figure I'm, I'm going to know what I'm doing. And if I'm wrong, at least I'm going to give it the best I can, you know. Uh, so to me, it's helped me be focused. It's helped me, uh, I think, make physical. So I have some injuries now, so I can't stay in the same kind of shape I once did. And I'll probably do being older, but also because of the injuries. But I make sure that I exercise. I just did my exercises today. I long before you called. I teach you know, only private classes now. I only teach one class a week. But I sometimes go up and teach one of the other classes. Um, so, you know, it's been very important to me. And there was a time when, you know, it was a, a, an even larger part of my daily life. Hey, can you give being so close to martial arts? Can you give me a prediction tonight? About what? Mayweather or McGregor? <laughs> Mayweather. Mayweather? Is he gonna? Is he gonna no. do it? I think he can. The only thing that might work against Mayweather is he's gotten older. That's what I've been no, saying. For, I, I mean, I he's don't forty. Do much with that stuff anymore. And, and even though I love it, I don't like uh, the mixed martial arts uh, TV stuff on TV. I do mix martial arts, and I've taught a bunch of the guys who do that. Stuff. But I, it's too much like professional wrestling and everybody, you know, puffing their chest out and stuff. Yeah, yeah. When when uh, Muhammad Ali and all them did it, it, it worked. It had a different feel to it. But for me, it's, it's all just so uh, you know against the nature of what martial arts are for. But I still, you know, I still respect those people's ability. Um, I, I think it's going to be Mayweather. I'm going to give it Mayweather. All right. I don't want to leave you tonight without giving Video Land a really good glimpse of just your work in general. So I want to list off just about five books, and I want to give uh, give me a, just a quick synopsis and just any right. thoughts that you have. All right. So Happen Leonard is a fan favorite series of yours. What's your yeah. thoughts on that? I've lost you. Yeah. What's your thoughts on that? Quick synopsis. What is Hap and Leonard all about for any Video Land people that might not know? Well, Happen Leonard is based on really me in some ways. That doesn't mean all the things that happened to him have happened to me. But it is that. It's in East Texas. They're sort of crime novels or kind of mysteries or a little bit adventure. I think that they're unique to the, in what they are. And I, I, I think a lot of people would enjoy them. How many Happen Leonard titles do you have? Uh, there's one coming out next year, Jack Rabbit Smile, what I'm working on now. I think that'll be 13, that one, and not counting a, a couple of collections of shorter works about them. Well, is that your favorite uh, characters to write for, then? Uh, they're my favorite characters. I don't know that they're always my favorite books, and that doesn't mean I don't love those books, but I think the characters make those books. 
edge of dark water, uh, you know, the bottoms, and that's what Bill Pax and I were working on before Blessing, he, you know, he died. Uh, but there are so many things I like I, and, and different approaches, so I don't know that I have a favorite among my favorites. You know, you mentioned Paradise Sky. That's one of the five I wanted to talk about. So, can you give us yep. a quick synopsis on that? And yeah, it, it, it takes you, place in the 1870s, not long after the Civil War, obviously, and it has it's come from the viewpoint of uh, a black uh, man who becomes a buffalo soldier, uh, uh, a town tamer in a way, also a crack shot, and finally a marshal. And it's based on a real person. You know, a lot of people don't know about the black history in the West, it's been forgotten or sort of pushed back behind the bushes for a long time. And this this is from his viewpoint. It's humorous. I think it's exciting. I think that character-wise it's strong. And it's my favorite of all my books. Oh, really? That's awesome. I can't wait to read that then. And then would HBO um, Deadwood fans, would they be interested in this book? Yes. Yes, they would. They could take place in Deadwood. That's awesome. I have we have some listeners. I think that would be very interested in that. And then the book, the book that I just pre-ordered. It should be in in a, in a day or two. It's called The Thicket. Um, what what really uh, I guess uh, influenced my order of this was I don't know if this is still um, I guess in in process, but it's still it's fun to think about. Uh, Peter Dinklage was was connected to this film adaptation. Is that still on? Still is. We we just renewed that connection recently uh, with his Man, I just read a quick synopsis, and then just Peter Dinklage's... Tyrion Lannister is one of my favorite characters, my favorite character in Game of Thrones. I read your synopsis about this this dwarf named Shorty and his, his yeah. bounty hunting adventures, and I'm like, I have to order the thicket. So that'll be here hopefully early next week. I cannot wait I to dive into that like book. It. I think you'll enjoy it. Again, that's on my, my favorite list. I've read like 45 different novels at least, you know, um, some of, some of which are pin that few two or three are pin that early in my career, so I have a lot of books there. But uh, mostly of those that have a historical nature, and the Happen Leonard books are you know among my favorites. And I'm proud of the Drive In Cold in July, which made a great film with the the late Sam Shepard who died just recently, yeah. and, and Don Johnson and Michael C. Hall, and you know so uh, there there are a lot of things that I'm passionate about and excited about and. And I know even the thing I've done the worst, I tried to do it the best when I was working on it. And one more series I just wanted to bring up so our, our listeners might want to pick this up is the Drive-In series. This sounds very yes. interesting to me. It's, is, is this your purest horror novel, you think? I don't know. I think Night Runners is a suspense novel, but it's also a horror novel. I think it may be closer to purest horror, but the Drive-In would come close, but it's also has a has a science fictional feel to it. It also has a, a sometimes mainstream novel feel to it in the sense of, of uh, satire and, uh, and, you know, absurdism. And it, it, it's unique unto itself because I think it's one of those rare cases when the book is the character more than the character in the book. The book itself is the character in the way it's constructed, the tonality of it. Um, that's not to say it doesn't have characters, but I just think that the strongest character is the book itself. And I don't believe there's anything else like it. It is unique. Uh, it's been very good to me over the years. It's currently out of print except in e-books, but that's something, that's something I'm going to remedy soon. 
You know, that's actually something I really wanted to ask you too, because I'm an old school reader, man. I, I can't, I cannot read eBooks, man. I want that book in my hand. I want that paper yeah. or that hardback book in my hand. Are you the same way or can you read an eBook? I, I can read an eBook, but I prefer the paper. But when I travel, like I'll go to Europe or something, I don't want to, you know, I used to carry a suitcase of books with me, literally. And so these, these days what I do is I can put 10, 15 books on my a reader and take it with me. And then if I just love that book, I'll come home and buy it and put it in my collection. If I think it's something, I'll pick up again. And a lot of times I find that I'm sitting up here in my library right now. My books are all around me. And oftentimes I'll go over and pick one of my favorite books down. I may flip it open anywhere and just read and enjoy the prose because I read a lot for the prose and for the characters and for the dialogue and for certain scenes and situations. So books I've read, I do reread sometimes from the front to the back. Sometimes I read sections. You know, I'll pick... Uh, say, uh, Ernest Hemingway, and I might flip over and farewell to arms just to read a chapter because I like the way it's written, or I'll read parts of uh, Wise Blood by Flannery O'Connor, or I'll read parts of Steinbeck, or I'll read short stories by them, or, and again, sometimes I'll start from the first and read them all the way through, because they're old friends. I can visit them anywhere at any time, Mark Twain, Huckleberry Finn, all of that, so I do like that have that book to hold in my hand, yeah. but when I travel, Yeah, as we come to a close tonight, what should Bubba Hotep fans read? Any of the any of those titles, or are there any other ones that I left out that you would recommend? Well, I, I think if you like Bubba Hotep, you probably ought to read the best of Joe R. Lansdale. If you can get High Cotton, you might want to read that. There's also one that may still be available from some dealers called uh, Bleeding Shadows. It's, it's using it. There's a title of one of my stories called uh, The Bleeding Shadow, but the whole book is called Bleeding Shadows. And it contains a Robert Johnson Lovecraftian 1950s uh, private eye story. Oh, nice. And that's, that's The Bleeding Shadow. And that, that collection of Bleeding Shadows is really bearable. It's got uh, sort of mainstream stories, uh, one about World War One, and it's got uh, horror stories. It's got crime stories. It's got some offbeat poetry. It's got science fiction. Uh, it's got a couple of zombie stories that you have written that are a little bit odd and unique. Uh, so I think, I would say if you can get, you know, the best of Joe R. Lansdale or that one, those might be the choices. Excellent. We have Bubba and the Cosmic Suckers coming out in October, but what's next for Joe Lansdale? Well, uh, actually, that's the next thing coming out, and then after that, probably early next year, they'll be doing the paperback of the uh, half a novel, Rusty Puppy, which comes out in paper. Came out hardback this year. And um, following that, there's uh, there should be some film stuff, and I don't want to talk too much about that, but there should be a couple of my things being done in anima animation. Oh, nice. Uh, but I don't want to say any more about what happened, and I should be directing a film based on my novella, uh, The Projections, next year. My son did a great script on it. I've got, you know, we've got the money, quite a bit of money, and uh, actor interest and people that I want. So, you know, if nothing blows between now and when, and money distribution, I will be prepping that in October and probably shooting in February or March. That is excellent, Joe. Thank you very much. Where can Videoland find you? Well, you can find me at my on my fan page. There's also a Facebook page, but that's really not 
To all our listeners, you can find us at adventuresinvideoland.com or on our website at Adventures in Video Land. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us all over the place. So until next time, my good people, peace out. Yeah.